Hello, everyone. My name is Larry Bobo. I am the Dean of Social Science at Harvard University, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to, upon further review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo, where we will be holding talks with members of the Harvard faculty in the Division of Social Sciences. Our first guest is David Padula, who is professor of sociology and a relatively new arrival here to Cambridge, Massachusetts. So welcome, David, and tell us a bit about this transition to the Boston-Cambridge area, which had to happen, sadly, during the COVID-19 era. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Larry, for having me today. And yeah, it's wonderful to be be here in Cambridge. I actually grew up in the Boston area, and so it kind of feels like a homecoming. Um, and before coming to, to Harvard, I was on the faculty at Stanford uh, in the sociology department there. And then last July, made the transition here to Cambridge. And so it's been wonderful to be here. My colleagues have been incredibly welcoming, and it's been great to get to know students over Zoom. Um, but I'm very excited for, uh, for what lies ahead and getting to kind of, you know, get fully integrated into the community here at Harvard and actually get to do some some in-person um, communication, some in-person meeting with, with faculty and students here. That is terrific to hear. We were all so excited uh, when you decided to come, and uh, your work is really enlivening uh, the discipline and reaching beyond the boundaries of, of sociology. As we all know, American society, the world at large in many respects, is being reshaped by worsening economic inequality. And your work, really as a stratification sociologist, bears very directly on those questions, though you've got a quite um, distinctive slant on it. And so maybe I would I would make uh, my first question to you before we kind of really leap into the, the details of, of your new book, is um, for you to tell us how the world of work has changed? Who is it that, that finds good jobs? Uh, who does not? And kind of why? Absolutely. So when we think about the changing nature of work in the United States, there's a lot of different axes that, that sociologists, economists, and, and social scientists care about. One of the main areas, which we'll get into when we discuss the book, is um, the emergence of various types of non-standard, contingent, and precarious employment in the United States. And while these types of positions have existed, you know, for decades or even centuries, um, since around the 1970s or 80s, we have seen an increase in the use of temporary help agencies and temporary employment, which is one thing that I look at in the book. So in addition to uh, the rise and you know increase of the use of temporary help agency workers, we also see other axes of kind of precariousness or inequality in the labor market. So one of the things that um, a colleague of ours, Danny Schneider, over at the Kennedy School studies is schedule precarity and schedule uncertainty and how that impacts workers. And so that's an, that's an axis that's gotten a lot more attention recently, and that's incredibly important. Um, and then we can also think about the rise of the gig economy and platform jobs, right? And so we know that workers are laboring through things like TaskRabbit and Upwork and Uber and Lyft. Um, and while these jobs make up a relatively small proportion of the overall economy, they have a really important role in policy conversations and really thinking about what does the future look like in terms of technological platforms and how workers are engaging um, through those different types of platforms and what are the consequences of that going to be for various types of inequality. So would, would it be fair to say in kind of a what's increasingly becoming a, a common sense term for it that your work is focused on the gig economy or is it a slightly different way we should be understanding 
what piece of this changing world of work that you're really wrestling with? So I actually take up um, a slightly different piece of the economy than the gig economy. And so oftentimes when I'm talking to journalists or family and friends, they immediately, when I talk about studying non-standard employment, immediately say, oh, so you study the gig economy. And so it's an interesting kind of distinction. Um, the gig economy generally thinks about, uh, as I mentioned, platform-based work, technological work through Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, Upwork, et cetera. Um, and what we know, it's hard to get great estimates of the proportion of the labor force that uh, works through those platforms, but the best estimates are somewhere, at least before the pandemic, of about 1%. Okay. I'm focused on other types of non-standard, mismatched, and precarious work. So things like part-time employment, uh, which again, before the pandemic, was somewhere between about 16 and 18% of the workforce. Um, temporary agency employment, which is usually about somewhere about 2.5% of the labor force. Um, and I also look at things like skills underutilization, which it's hard, depending on how you define skills underutilization, it can be, you know, um, somewhere around 20% of the workforce are in, 20% uh, of the college-educated workforce might be defined as being in a, a job below their skill level or a job for which they're overqualified. And so I'm kind of looking at a different slice of non-standard and contingent work than would be normally captured by the gig economy. I see. Very good. Very good. Now, you uh, the, the major title of your, your important new book is Making the Cut. Now, why Making the Cut? So it's actually a really interesting titling books. Um, and so we had a bunch of back and forth kind of thinking about what the title would be. Initially, the title of the book was Contingent, um, kind of thinking about contingent workers. Um, and then the book really focuses on what we refer to as the demand side of the job matching process. So what I'm really interested in is how do employers make decisions about who to hire? Um, and so making the cut really captures um, two aspects of the world of work that I'm interested in from these kind of employer side perspective. The first is how do employers actually make the cut between the A pile and the B pile? Who do they decide gets in and who do they decide stays out? Um, so making the cut that way. And then thinking about making the cut kind of from the perspectives of the worker and what does a worker need to do to make the cut? What do they need to do to get into an organization to kind of maintain um, uh, kind of a positive valence within the eyes of the employers who are making these decisions. And so it had kind of a dual meaning, both from the perspective of the worker as well as the perspective of the employer. I see. So, and and um, as you've already stressed, th this kind of issue of, of um, hiring process, making decisions about who's really in line for a position and who finally gets a position in a way, is something that's that's been a concern for social scientists for a very, very long time. But um, there's still something hard about getting a grasp on that for social scientists, right? What are the challenges when it comes to trying to examine hiring decisions and decision making? It's a really important question because, as we know, hiring decisions are often made behind closed doors, right? They're made by hiring managers and their teams and um, and various recruiters within an organization. And it's very rare. Occasionally, ethnographers or others will get access to those decision-making rooms. But in general, as scholars, we have to study the hiring decision-making process from outside of those actual rooms where the decisions get made. And so there's two key techniques that I use in the book um, and that scholars have used to really try to understand uh, in depth the hiring process. The first is what's often referred to as audit studies or correspondence audit studies, where what the researcher does is send fictitious job applications to or um, in the case of um, some 
original work in this area actually sending out actors or testers to apply for jobs. So you can either do it with actors or now it's more common to apply for jobs online. So do it with uh, online applications. And what the researcher can do is randomly manipulate certain aspects of the job application. And so you keep everything consistent except the one thing that you want to see whether that has an effect on a hiring decision. So these have been great at studying things like racial discrimination, gender discrimination. Um, and what I do in the book is manipulate different employment histories on people's applications. So randomly assigning someone a year of part-time work or a year of unemployment or a year in a temp agency. And then what you can do is you can track employers' responses to each of those applications, which we call a callback. So did the applicant get a callback for a job? And by comparing the callback rates between the different conditions that you've manipulated as the researcher, you can get a sense of the causal effect of one given attribute on hiring decisions. And that provides really nice insight into how these decisions get made and what the kind of outcomes for workers are with these different backgrounds and histories. So that's one branch is really the kind of the field experiments or audit studies. The other is using in-depth interviews and actually talking to people. And so I wasn't able to get access to actually being in the room when these decisions were made, but I did get access to um, have in-depth conversations with hiring managers, staffing consultants, recruiters, to really talk with them about how they make decisions, the things that they care about, really asking them what's important to you during the hiring process. I see. And so... Um Tell us a little bit more then about your um, your your field experiment that that you were actually in a position to to get a, a pretty large sample of um, test cases in effect, right? Absolutely. So. In the book, I present evidence from uh, over 4,000 job applications that I sent to four different occupational groups across five different geographic areas in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there were five key employment histories that I manipulated on the resumes. So I signed some workers a full-time standard kind of seamless employment history. Some workers got one year of part-time work leading up to applying for a new job. Some got a year of temporary agency employment. Some got a year working in a job well below their skill level and some got a year of unemployment. And then what I did is, as a sociologist, I really care a lot about key axes of social stratification, so issues of race, gender, and how social categories map onto and shape evaluation processes. So I overlaid those five different employment histories uh, with race and gender, which I signaled on the job applications using racialized and gendered names. And so what I was able to do is look at what is the effect of having a part-time employment history for, say, a man versus a woman? Or what's the consequence of having a spell of unemployment for a white individual or an individual that's likely to be perceived as white versus an individual that's likely to be perceived as African-American? How might their kind of spell of unemployment be read differently by employers? And so the book enabled me to kind of get really nice causal traction on how those different categories affect callbacks and then how they vary with the race and gender of the job applicant. I see. So um, let me wrestle with um, um, a piece of this then of, of what's going on in the kind of um, framing of both pieces of, of, of your work. And that's kind of an, an idea, not so much a theme, but, but an idea that's core to your work. And that is that there, virtually all of us are working with some notion of what the good job is or what the good job used to be as a, a more common experience uh, in, in the American economy. So when you're writing and then when you end up talking with employers and what we think are in potential employees and, and, and uh, employers' minds, um, what is the good job? What is that normative vision? 
So generally when employers think about a good job, they think about a job that is full-time, that has kind of, um, in addition to being full-time, is kind of has an expectation of continued employment, so it's not temporary, and that it's well-matched to the worker's skill level. So those are a few of the key aspects that often employers see as a good job, but also something, and importantly, that many workers see as a good job. Many workers want to be in a position where they expect continued employment, where they're working the number of hours that they want, which for many workers or most workers is a full-time job. Um, and that really you know, is utilizing their skills, providing them with opportunities for advancement, et cetera. Um, and so what I find is that when workers deviate from this kind of normative conception of a good job that many workers and many employers both hold, oftentimes, although not universally, uh, they face various types of stigma or various penalties um, when employers are evaluating them. And and we've seen a, a, a pretty big transformation, I take it, in the extent to which the, the labor force writ large is characterized by that type of employment, the employment that is full-time, that is expected to continue, and that, say, provides you know benefits and real stability for, for a, a person in the labor force. So we have seen a lot of changes in the labor market. We, we know very clearly that there's been a significant increase in temporary employment in the United States. Um, and again, it's a little tricky to, to figure out skills underutilization and how it's transformed over time. But there are some nice estimates that indicate that increasingly, particularly amongst college-educated workers, an increasing fraction of college-educated workers are in jobs below their skill level. Um, and we see um, you know, workers experience unemployment, and that fluctuates significantly with the business cycle. So that's going to move in and out over time, depending on kind of where we're at with the broader economy. Um, and so... These things really have come together where, you know, even though it can be really challenging for workers to find these quote unquote good jobs or the jobs that align with a normative conception of a good job, many of them end up in positions that deviate from that that good job outside of, you know, their own desires or even their own control, right? They may lose a job and then end up having to take a position below their skill level or only be able to find part, part-time work or only be able to find employment through a temp agency. Um, and so, yeah, we see workers that are kind of ending up in these positions through no fault of their own and then can really struggle to try to find employment in the future, um, as the, the evidence in the book demonstrates. I see. So what if, if you were to just do a slice kind of across the top for the moment, setting aside how it may differ between men and women or how it may differ between blacks and whites, which one of these these different employment uh, trajectories uh, kind of has the biggest stigma attached to it? Would it be some non-standard employment, the mismatch condition, or someone who's really had a very precarious employment history? What, what puts you furthest behind? It's a great question. And so one of the things that I argue in the book is that it's actually quite difficult to fully disentangle these types of employment histories from the social categories of the workers who embody them um, because things like part-time work are so heavily gendered and unemployment is so heavily racialized. That being said, um, I do find consistent um, evidence that taking a job below your skill level is as penalizing for workers in general as a year of unemployment. Um, and so we do see- Wow, really? That's yes. pretty so strong. It's, it's quite strong. Um, and so, um, you know, it might be easiest to think about the the white male condition. Um, we're looking at kind of white men who move into a job below their skill level. The callback rate um, for workers who, uh, for white male workers who move into jobs below their skill level is about half of that 
uh, the callback rate of white men who may, may remain in full-time jobs at their skill level. Um, and the callback rate is very similar between the skills underutilization condition and the unemployment condition for those white men. And so we're seeing really strong negative penalties, uh, particularly for white men, um, in that skills underutilization condition. But really across the board, we see we see penalties for, for skills underutilization. I see. Wow. So if we were if we were to now fold in more substantially a concern with how the experience of uh, men and women differ, it seems I don't want to say it's it's day for night, but but uh, part time un- unemployment uh, or part time work doesn't seem to carry near the cost for women in terms of future job prospects or movement as it does for men. And that's really what I find in the book. I find that um, particularly when you look at uh, white individuals or individuals whose names are likely to signal whiteness or not be particularly racialized for employers, I see that men who move into part-time jobs um, face penalties similar to unemployment again. So their callback rates are cut roughly in half uh, from the full-time condition. Whereas for women, I really don't see strong penalties of part-time work. Um, And I was really interested in this finding. So I, I got this finding from the field experiment and Part of what I wanted to do in the book is help to unpack that and really understand what's going on in employers' minds. How are employers thinking about these different types of positions? And so the in-depth interviews were incredibly useful in really trying to unpack and understand the mechanisms that might be driving those effects in the field experiment. And particularly this gender and part-time work finding was one that I really wanted to explore with the hiring managers and recruiters. And what I found um, is that for women who move into a part-time job, employers have a really quick kind of narrative that they can use to explain that movement, uh, which is around parenthood and caretaking responsibilities for women. And we know that parenting and caretaking responsibilities for women have huge negative consequences in other domains of the labor market in terms of wage setting and promotions and all sorts of employers' conceptions about uh, women and motherhood. And so I want I think it's important to acknowledge that this kind of narrative around women and motherhood and caretaking certainly has costs. In this particular case, what I find is that it provides a quick narrative and script for employers to dismiss women's part-time work as not being particularly problematic. Whereas for men, what I found is a man who took a part-time job led to questions about their competence and ability, um, real concerns about, you know, why were they in this part-time job? What's, what's quote-unquote, what's wrong with them? Or what's up with this guy that he couldn't get a full-time job? Um, and really leaves these kind of looming questions that employers fill with kind of negative ideas about the male worker who was in a part-time job. I see. There, so there, there are kind of two threads here I want to pick up on. One is that different types of employment histories send a signal, or at least are read as sending a signal. And uh, at the same time, employers are in their own minds kind of crafting a story. I think you call them uh, stratification narratives or stratification stories about uh, what that signal means for them. Uh, Can you elaborate on those points? Absolutely. And so, yeah, I use the term stratified stories in the book to really talk about the divergent narratives that employers weave about employment histories depending on the sociodemographic characteristics of the worker. And so in this case with with part-time work, part-time work sends a signal and employers make meaning from a part-time employment history, but the meaning that gets constructed is shaped by the social position of the worker. And so Essentially, it's a, you know, for women, it's a story about caretaking and parenthood. For men, it's a story about competence, ability, or being a dud or having something wrong with them. And so the same employment history 
gets read and kind of ascribed meaning and given a narrative in a very different way for a man and a woman. Um, and that's the the kind of sort of uh, data that I'm able to draw on in the book to help understand why we see different patterns in the field experiment for, say, men and women or for uh, white applicants and African-American job applicants. Now, we've done a little bit of a dive uh, more fully into the the gender differences that, that operate there. Now, how about with uh, respect to race and perhaps in particular with the, the need to have this more intersectional eye, the intersection of, of race and gender here? So how do the experiences from uh, African-American men, say, differ from those of African-American women and not just from their, their white gender counterparts? Absolutely. So what I find in the book is that um, racial discrimination against African-American job applicants is severe and very strong and persistent. And this is backed up by a huge number of studies across the social sciences by different research teams. Um, And there's some great meta-analytic work by Lincoln Quillian and colleagues that came out in PNAS a few years ago (laughs) where they actually pooled all of the audit studies of racial discrimination and hiring that they could find in the United States. Um, And then they looked at the trend over time in those discrimination estimates. And what they found is that um, discrimination against African-Americans has not declined since 1989 in the United States across these different audit studies. And so it wasn't particularly surprising, although, you know, it's quite troubling that I saw this kind of persistent uh, discrimination against African-Americans. When I kind of merge that in with gender and these employment histories, we get some really interesting, uh, interesting patterns that emerge. So what I find for African-American men is that discrimination is so severe at the hiring interface that um, in most conditions, you see very little variation in the callback rates for African-American men um, because there's so much discrimination kind of baked in um, to the the kind of callback rates that they receive already. So I find essentially no difference in the callback rate between African-American men who who were in kind of seamless, full-time, continuous employment and African-American men who had a year of unemployment, a spell of skills underutilization, or a part-time job. For for African-American men, the one condition that um, kind of jumped out is that when they had moved through a temporary help agency, they actually received higher callback rates than they did in the kind of full-time yeah, condition. That was, that was fascinating, as, as if the idea that, that a temporary agency had taken a gamble on you uh, uh, reduced the likelihood that you fit the negative stereotype in the eyes of another potential employer. Absolutely. And that's that's really what came out of the interviews again, is talking to um, a bunch of the hiring managers and recruiters. Um, because I did the interviews after the field experiment, one of the nice things was at the end of the interview, right after I had let them kind of talk about all of these things in their own terms and give me their own narratives and the way that they think about these things, I actually was able to present some of the findings from my field experiment to the hiring managers and have them talk to me about wow. how they would interpret them, how they would think about them, which methodologically for me was fascinating as a scholar to have the actual people I was studying in the field experiment look at the data with me and then try to kind of make sense of it. And um, one of the things that really emerged out of that um, in this case around temporary help agency employment and African-American men was this idea of, yeah, a temp agency took a risk on this person. And also that temp agencies often have very high levels of kind of screening, criminal background Uh checks, drug testing. And so 
there's a set of overlapping stereotypes that come out in the literature on employers have stereotypes of African-American men that may overlap with having a criminal history, et cetera, and that there may be something offsetting about a temp agency having pre-screened this person or you know, provide some sort of sense that they've already been through a vetting process that may deactivate some of those stereotypes. I see. That is really interesting. Now, if, if I recall correctly, and you, you get to tell me whether or not this was really a statistically significant difference, for the experimental condition in which you had an African-American male who was employed full-time in a credential-appropriate position had a 50% lower likelihood of getting a callback than a comparable white male. Was that correct? That is... So, yes, in a in the between the African-American man and the white man in the full-time seamless continuous employment yes. condition, it was about half the callback rate. That's exactly right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is a pretty steep penalty. It's a steep penalty. Um, and again, that effect size is similar to what we've seen uh, in previous studies as well. Yeah. Yeah. And now what... What about the story for uh, black women? What What's happening there? So for black women, what I find is that there's um, discrimination and penalties that they face compared to white women. Um, what's interesting in the case of black women is that the penalty is relatively consistent across all the different employment categories. And so I find kind of, uh, I find racial discrimination against African-American compared to white women that's diffuse, um, as you might want to think about it, that kind of isn't as contingent on the employment history that kind of the racial discrimination is picked up across the board. So if you were reflecting back on on um, the, the data you collected, is there anything that really kind of hit you as a surprise or, or a departure from what you expected upon uh, entering this, uh, collecting these data and, and pulling together what, what your results were showing? So I have to say I... I was a little bit surprised at the magnitude of the effect um, that uh, white men face for part-time employment and the limit, the really no negative effect for women. I thought there might be something in the middle, um, and we really see these kind of strong divergence by gender. Um, I also have to say I was quite surprised that the callback rates for African-Americans in uh, both when you pool men and women for African-Americans in full-time conditions was virtually identical to um, the callback rate for African-Americans who have been unemployed for a year. Um, and that those were actually mm -hmm. almost identical in terms of their their callback rates was a little bit of a, of a surprise to me. I thought that we might see, you know, again, something a little bit different there. Um, and then in terms of temporary help agency employment, um, I was you know, really struck by this finding for African-American men where we see this positive effect. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that shows up in other research or, you know, if that emerges in other studies as well. Um, and then I think I was, I have to say, I was a little surprised that I didn't find, I don't find strong negative effects of temp agencies for any workers. Um, I don't find for white men, white women, black women, black men, there's no, no group for whom temporary help agency employment is statistically significantly a negative effect. And that was a little bit surprising to me that um, employers are not seeing this as negatively as some of these other employment histories. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. So um, some of your uh, interpretation of the results here suggests, or let me put the question provoc more, more provocatively <laughs> and do it this way. In your, especially your in-depth interviews with employers or those making hiring um, decisions, uh, especially if you present them with the after you've presented them with the data you've you've collected and what you found, do any of them develop kind of a sociological insight? Do they do they get to a different appreciation 
um, uh, because it seems to me that that part of what's going on here is sort of the classic actor-observer bias, right? When we look at someone else and an action they've they've taken, or in this instance, a a description of their employment history on the page, we're assuming that that history is driven by their characteristics and choices, not by the larger context and circumstances in which they're embedded, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is there any sign that, that um, uh, those making hiring decisions learn to think a little more sociologically and maybe invest a little more time and energy in reaching judgments about who might be able to perform a, a particular type of job? So it's really interesting. I did not find in general a lot of like serious moves towards sociological thinking about these things um, in the employers that I talked to. But I will say that there are there were certainly a few employers I spoke with who did kind of, you know, from the start have more of a kind of macro level understanding of these things. Um, And it was, you know, doing interviews with employers is really interesting because. I did find um, that they were very hesitant to talk about certain things. So they were very hesitant to talk about race um, Mm -hmm. in terms of anything in the kind of, you know, the early parts of the interview before I had, you know, presented the findings from the field experiment, just asking them general questions, thinking about things they looked for, you know, asking very broad questions about, you know, might that be different for you depending on race or how might race play into this for some other people in your field, you know, trying to get at it in a bunch of different ways. And they were very hesitant to kind of talk about race. They were a little bit more willing to talk about gender. Um, and then one thing that was fascinating that I wasn't expecting, um, and I don't I don't have age variation in the book, and so I wasn't really keened in on age variation, but age came up in the interviews a bunch um, as employers kind of being willing to talk about you know, not wanting to hire older workers or things like that. Um, And they were much less guarded about the age axis of variation than they were about race and gender, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, that 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 is fascinating. So out of out of um, all your findings now and your reflection on this, if you were giving um, advice to job seekers, people who are putting their resumes uh, into these, you know, various online systems for job uh, applications, what should they be thinking? What should they be doing? Can there should they add a little paragraph on an explanation of my job history for for example? Absolutely. And this is something I really struggle with that people often ask, you know, friends and family who have read the book are like, oh, I have a, a son who lost a job or a daughter who's, you know, doing this. What should I tell them? And it's so complicated to offer individual level advice given that, you know, what I'm able to look at in the book are really these aggregate patterns and aggregate trends. Um, I do think there may be some utility in offering explanations for, say, an employment gap or why someone, you know, was working part time in a cover letter, for instance, and that sort of thing. Um, Although I'm a little hesitant to offer that advice, given there's some great work by Kate Weissar at UNC, who's found that when people have taken time out of the labor force um, and signal in their cover letter that it was for caretaking responsibilities, they actually face stronger penalties than workers who were just unemployed without giving a reason. And that's what gives me a little pause about encouraging people to tell these narratives because you never know exactly how it's going to be received or how what inferences an employer is going to make about the type of narrative that you apply. And so 
to pivot a little bit, I think there's some great room in the social sciences um, to do work in this area, really testing out different explanations and explanatory frameworks for, say, part-time work or unemployment, and whether you can actually reduce some of the stigma and bias depending on the narrative that's used. Um, and so, you know, I think it would be great for folks to kind of think about that as an avenue forward that could have real policy policy impact and, you know, offer some real guidance to job seekers as they think about approaching the labor market. And what about on the on the the race discrimination front? Is there anything here that that uh, gives us leverage on on kind of breaking down what seems a pretty potent pattern of bias against um, African Americans in the workforce? Absolutely. So in the book, I have less kind of traction on that set of issues, but in my other research and and other work I've done, have really thought a lot about what levers exist to reduce discrimination and bias. And so um, with my former mentor and advisor, Diva Pager, who tragically passed away in 2018, uh, before she passed, we actually organized a conference here at the Radcliffe Institute Mm -hmm. um, where we brought folks together with the sole goal of answering the question, what works to reduce discrimination and bias? Um, and out of that, we um, I uh, we kind of put together a report with different people who came to the um, who came to the conference with different sections on you know the tools that we have that exist um, to reduce discrimination and bias. And a few of them, just that I'll note quickly, that I think are important are you know one is. For companies who care about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really getting um, kind of getting some traction on reducing bias and discrimination, having clear uh, benchmarks and goals in terms of data, um, figuring out what those metrics are going to be, and then the key point here is making those data available to key stakeholders so that those stakeholders can hold you accountable. Um, and so that's one thing that that really seems to be quite important. A second area is, as we've seen the increased use of technology uh, in the hiring and recruiting process, to really get out ahead of using any technology to make sure that how it was programmed and developed and the algorithms that are used don't include biased data and aren't leading to bias up front. And then having a continuous monitoring process to make sure that bias isn't getting introduced into the data as you continue to use, say, an applicant tracking system or algorithmic screening process. And then the last, uh, or one other thing that comes out of the report that I think is useful is the importance of having buy-in across different levels of the organization, and particularly from managers and frontline managers, into whatever diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are going to be brought to the organization. So you don't want to have top-level CEOs and C-suite executives mandating what's going to happen and then kind of pushing that out to the rest of the organization, where you might be grafting something onto the organization that isn't a great fit. But if you can get buy-in early on from key stakeholders about what you're doing, you're going to have much more success over the long term. And so I think those are a few of the areas uh, that I I think companies would be uh, well-suited to pursue and think about as they approach these set of issues. I see. And um, let me step back a bit and and do now a slightly more academic track for a second here on maybe two sides or three. One would be... um, how do you feel as someone who works in this arena of work and discrimination about the character and caliber of the research? I mean, there's been a pretty big evolution, right, and change in how we go at these issues. I think about some of the work that would have been done in the past on things like, let's say, discrimination in um, uh, wages and, and what people were earning and, you know, it was considered satisfactory to just point to the residual. You did a regression equation predicting earnings, 
put in education, put in age, time in, in the labor force, and, and, and maybe if you had any detailed uh, other human capital attributes, and whatever was left distinguishing blacks from whites, that was discrimination. That's how much was, was out there. So where are we today kind of intellectually as, as a field, as an area of scholarly endeavor with respect to work and employment? I think we've um, moved in a direction where there's a higher level of skepticism um, about making claims that something is discrimination or that something, you know, really attributing something to discrimination. Um, At this point, I feel like, you know, in the evaluative process in the academic community, going through peer review, presenting at conferences, these sorts of things, um, making strong claims about discrimination and bias often requires or is often held to the standard of some sort of exogenous variation, either, you know, a true experiment where the researcher has control over manipulating the race of a target and then estimating the effect based off of that manipulation, like we do in these audit studies, um, or having some sort of quasi uh, quasi natural or quasi experimental variation where you can estimate these sorts of effects. Um, pure residual based models out of a regression framework, I think, are facing increasing skepticism. And you know, certainly when I have students who want to work with me around these sets of issues, um, I try to dissuade them from kind of pursuing a project that relies solely on that approach, at least, um, if they want to be thinking about these issues of bias and discrimination, um, because I think it can be really hard um, to to feel confident in that sort of interpretation um, without some sort of uh, exogenous or uh, exogenous variation, either experimentally or quasi-experimentally. So let me think about the kind of um, field experiment that you've done. I know that in the past there have been some fairly trenchant critiques of um, auditing studies, the kind of matched pair studies, and and those as somehow not being as strong a test as many of the initial proponents uh, would have have argued for. And somewhat relatedly, uh, more of of a kind of scholarly ethics question about sending out what are really not real resumes in response to real job postings. Um, so on, on the one hand, does the field experiment get us out of some of the challenges to, to uh, matched pair auditing studies? And uh, are there any ethical concerns or qualms in sending out what are basically kind of fictitious resumes out to, to real employers? Absolutely. So I think with the, the correspondence studies where you're sending out resumes have helped to address some of the methodological critiques around the early audits that were often in-person actors, where there were concerns about, you know, small differences in appearance or, you know, simply what someone's wearing or slight differences in physical attractiveness could be confounding the race effects. And so having job applications and resumes, I think, is a way where you can much more carefully standardize the comparison between, say, a white and a black job applicant. Of course, that introduces a new set of concerns in addition to the the ethical things that you mentioned, which I'll come to in a second. It also, the signal of race that is often used in these studies is names. Mm-hmm. Um, and names and their intersection with race introduce a whole different set of methodological issues around what might be confounding uh, racialized names, might class signaling be part of the story here. Um, And so there's, I would say, like a little cottage industry of methodological work that's really trying to think through names and what they signal and and how to do that well. On the ethical front, um, this is an issue that I take really seriously. And I think as we do this work, we have to be really cautious and careful that the benefits of the knowledge that are produced by these types of studies are outweighing any sort of risk or burden of time that we're placing on employers. And, um, you know, I think that 
having a body of research that clearly documents uh, racial discrimination and how it varies and, you know, potential ways to reduce it um, is of utmost importance right now um, in the social sciences, in the world. We're experiencing, you know, significant um, racial upheaval and racial con- contestation and thinking about the kind of long-lasting consequences of slavery and other forms of racial inequality in the United States. And I think um, as social scientists, we have an obligation to do what we can to contribute to those conversations and to, um, you know, really play an important role in documenting the persistence of racial inequality. And this is really one of the best tools we have to do it. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, we need to think about the ethics. We need to ensure that, you know, IRBs are signing off on our research and that they're kind of vetted through experts uh, in research ethics. But I do think that this work is important and necessary um, and that we, we need to pursue, um, you know, these kind of gold standard tests of discrimination um, to understand how they're playing out across the economy. Great. Thank you. Let me let me ask another kind of um, uh, in the academy question. And that is when you think about research in this area of kind of modern uh, employment decision-making processes and especially discrimination, how does your work and approach as a sociologist, say, differ from or overlap with that being done by our friends and colleagues in economics? I mean, is is there a significant difference here or have the differences between the two disciplines in engaging these issues really narrowed substantially over the years? My sense is, is that there's actually a fair amount of overlap. So I don't I don't think there's a need to kind of draw stark disciplinary boundaries. I have great friends in economics who are doing fantastic work on racial discrimination and gender discrimination. And I think those conversations can be really, really powerful and useful between the disciplines. Um, I do think one area where there, there might be some differences is um, in sociology, we use a kind of breadth of methodological approaches, everything from experiments to survey analysis. Um, But then we also have a whole qualitative tool set that's very common in the discipline from ethnographic work to in-depth interviewing. And so I do think that something sociologists can bring to the table is really thinking about the ways that qualitative research can be put into conversation with large-scale quantitative analyses and experimental work to help think about mechanisms and underlying processes that are driving inequality. And it's one of the things that drew me to sociology as a discipline, to kind of have um, different methodological approaches in conversation with one another about these key uh, these key theoretical and empirical issues. Um, and so I do think that's an area where... Um, where sociology may differ slightly from um, from economics, although the again, I think the differences in a lot of the work are are relatively minor, and you know I've really enjoyed the conversations I've had with with my friends in economics around these sets of issues. Yeah, great. So what what has the reception been to the book now now that it's out there, kind of kind of in the world, and and uh, other folks are are digesting it and engaging it? What are you hearing, and and how are you feeling about the feedback? So it's been great. I've gotten some some really nice feedback from from colleagues and uh, from students, and it was really fun. Actually, this spring I had a a student who was enrolled in my undergraduate research design class who showed up to office hours in the second week and was like, "I just got your book. I'm so excited to read it." And you know, came to talk about it. And you know, I think that's the best feeling in the world to have one of your students <laughs> find your book and want to talk about it. So that was that was really exciting, um, and it's really interesting. I think. One interesting thing about the book is it came out in April 2020, right as the pandemic happened. Um, and so, you know, everyone's lives were kind of turned on their head as the book was coming out. And in some ways, it was it was not front and center on my mind at that moment either. 
Um, I do think that because the book is interested in the effects of these different types of employment histories, that there's a real there's real room for the conversation now and in the coming months as the economy is recovering, as employers are ramping up hiring, and you know thousands and thousands of workers have been pushed into these types of positions that I studied in this book. You know, moved into part time jobs, had to take jobs below their skill level to make ends meet. You know, haven't been able to find work and are unemployed. And so I'm hopeful that potentially some of the findings here will be useful to the conversation moving forward as the economy is recovering. And I think they do open up kind of an interesting set of questions about, you know, in the context of the pandemic and the recession where so many workers have experienced these positions, might some of the findings actually look different moving forward? You know, if so many more workers... You've actually anticipated what was oh. going to be one of my two last questions. So so how does the COVID-19 era and, and our hopes for coming out of it either amplify or change the story that, that that the book tells. And I think that's exactly the question um, and something I'm hoping to pursue some work on and I'm hoping other folks will continue to, to do some work in that area because um, I think it will be really interesting, certainly empirically, just to know, you know, does does the negative effect of unemployment look different in a post-COVID world? Um, does, a, you know, taking a job below your skill level mean something different? Um, but I think it also provides a case of some really interesting or insight into some really interesting theoretical questions about, you know, when these positions become more normative, when they are more easily disentangled from the individual worker and more easily attributed to a structural feature of, you know, the pandemic affected so many people's lives in so many ways and the economy in such a broad way that, you know, it's much more, it would be much easier for an employer to attribute a spell of unemployment to that rather than to something's wrong with this individual worker. And I think it provides some opportunity to get some traction on those questions as well. Yeah. So closely related to, to that observation, what's next for David Padula then in, in this arena? Is it is it really to focus on the uh, recovery from COVID-19 and its impacts on the economy? Or was there some other um, uh, intellectual project that, that, that you had next on the burner? So the project, um, I'm hoping to do some work around COVID and the recovery in in the coming year. Um, but actually, as a next step to the book project, um, and leading up to the before the pandemic, had finished collecting data for a project that was really trying to think about racial discrimination and gender discrimination, not as a kind of individual decision-making process, but rather situating it within the organizations where those decisions are made. And so as sociologists and social scientists who have studied racial discrimination, we've been really good at generating estimates of racial discrimination effects in these field experiments. Um, Folks in psychology and social psychology have done fantastic work getting at the underlying cognitive and social psychological mechanisms driving those processes. And we have some great macro level work looking at, you know, state and national level variation in racial and ethnic discrimination. But it's been really hard to look at how organizational context and organizational policies and practices shape racial discrimination in hiring, in large part because the data just haven't exist. You need a field experiment and then detailed organizational data about those, those companies that were in the field experiment. And so a large project that I conducted over a bunch of years was to actually collect that data, matching a field experiment with a detailed survey of employers, where we can begin to ask questions like, you know, do more formalized and bureaucratic organizations discriminate less against African 
Americans at the hiring interface? Or when organizations have more generous work family policies, are they less or more discriminatory against women at the hiring interface? And so that's really the project that I've been focused on and um, kind of am in the process of analyzing the data and writing up the results. And I'm hopeful that uh, the first set of papers from that project will be out in the, in the coming year or two. That sounds fantastic and really exciting. And we will all be looking forward to reading that work as it, it begins to come out. Thank you so much, David, for spending this time with us on Upon Further Review. And we can all recommend to the, our, our fellow scholars around the Division of Social Sciences reading, Making the Cut, Hiring Decisions, Bias, and the Consequences of Nonstandard, Mismatch, and Precarious Employment by David Padula, published by Princeton University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Larry. This was, this was a real pleasure. Thank you.